You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Well, welcome to another episode of Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. Um, we've got another fantastic interview lined up for you in this episode. Um, I'm going to be shortly talking to Frank Johnson, and we're going to be talking to Frank about some articles that he's written for Ancient Aliens Debunk. Now, um, I don't mind saying we've had some wonderful guests on Like Flint Radio and um, Future Quake Southern Hemisphere, but there has not been one guest that I have actually well, really worn down and asked more than once to try and get on the show. And um, it's taken a while. And I can tell you, I was pretty persistent because I really wanted to talk to Frank. So at long last, I've got, I got Frank. I wore him down till he said yes. And um, so I'd just like to welcome to Like Flint Radio, Frank Johnson. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thanks, G. Uh, how's it going? I'm doing very well, thanks. Nice and warm here on this side but i guess it's quite cool uh up that side still yeah still cool a uh, little bit of snow and uh probably by july it'll be gone so so that long will it be uh probably yeah. wow <laughs> all right nice and cool well anyway mm-hmm. what we want to talk about today frank is um you know as i said in the introduction your articles that appear on ancient aliens debunked but before we get to those articles, because we've picked a few to talk about, can I ask you how did you end up writing for that particular website? How did that happen? Yeah, it's kind of a long, long story, actually. So mm-hmm. maybe uh, like back in 2009 or so, uh, Chris White, he was kind of doing his podcast, I think, uh, Nowhere to Run or whatever. And he... Uh, put out a just kind of an open call for for blogs and stuff and so you know I was uh, just finishing college there um, a little bit later than most people but uh, yeah, I was just finishing college studied writing and then I was like you know I want some writing experience you know maybe I'll just pitch it by him and you know just see if he'll you know take me to do a blog for the you know RRN feed there and so um you know, I did that and, and started blogging and did a couple of years of, of just blogs. And I, I don't really want to mention that blog, so <laughs> I just kind of let that one sit where it is. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of did that for a couple of years. And he put out a, another call on his show for um, some people to help do some research with the Ancient Aliens debunked in the movie. And, uh, you know, I had already been blogging and doing research, you know, and, Figured, you know, why not? This sounds kind of interesting, uh, something I've always kind of had an interest in and wasn't really sure about all the stuff that was being said. And so, you know, I kind of did a researched a few of the claims from the TV show Ancient Aliens. And then, uh, you know, from there, um, I think Chris said he had a, a website, you know, ready to go. And, you know, he would still want, you know, maybe some blog content to go along with it. And so... You know, I just kind of, after the movie came out, I just just started doing some blogs and I've just kind of kept at it here and there since, so. Right, I've really enjoyed the uh, blog articles and, um, which is a, you know, a lot of the reason, yeah, a lot of the reason I wanted to have you on. And um, we will um, put a link to the um, Ancient Aliens Debunk blog where 
people can find your articles there. But what I want to ask you, you know, some of these articles you wrote, like um, there's one about the star child skull, um, mm -hmm. one about the um, Peruvian skulls and that. What made you interested in writing articles along those lines? Have you always been interested in those sort of topics? I, I think kind of growing up, I've always uh, actually had an interest in the UFO stuff, you know, paranormal, whatever. Um, so kind of growing up through school, I, you know, would read books of that nature. And then especially like in my teens, I, I started reading a lot of the, uh, what do you call it, the UFO literature and stuff. And I think I remember reading some of, uh, what, what is it, Von Daniken's stuff and, you know, just kind of getting into that and being aware of all that stuff. And so, yeah, it's something I've kind of, you know, all those ancient mysteries and stuff like that, all that, oh, people couldn't build this. And, yeah, it's just something I've kind of studied a lot throughout my whole life, um, especially right. as a teenager, yeah. Yeah, right. I remember um, reading the Von Daniken books as well. Um, yeah. And I think that kind of made me um, interested in these topics myself. I think um, when I was younger, my brother bought the books home and read them and left them laying around, and I think I picked them up and read them. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of give my age away a bit there, but because um, <laughs> yeah, those early ones were pretty have, have been around for a while. But with those sort of topics, were you a believer while you were reading those topics, or did you be, you know did you come believer after you've discovered the sort of von Daniken sort of stuff, or what was your just 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 briefly your journey? I, I remember. I think the biggest the big moment was like I think I had seen uh, Stargate when I was like fourteen or whatever. And uh, yeah, that's really giving away my age too. But uh, yeah, I think uh, from there, I, I was just really, like really fascinated with the with the topic. And I don't I don't know that I ever really thought it was like really aliens necessarily. But I always kind of thought that you know science didn't really have like all the answers to how they could build all these amazing things. And you know, some of the claims they made about the artwork is like really uh, convincing. You know, so I. I really don't know where I fell on it. I kind of believed in aliens, and I kind of was open to the possibility that, like, aliens did all this stuff, you know, created all these things they claim they did. And I also kind of, since I wasn't sure on that, I kind of uh, opened it up to the idea of, like, uh, you know, human beings coming up with, like, advanced technology years and years ago that, you know, we've since forgotten. So I was, you know, really op open to either idea, and I think maybe... Ooh, in my 20s, when I started kind of getting into UFOs again, I came across all this stuff about ancient aliens just before the show was coming out. And I think that's when I really started to entertain the idea more and more of aliens coming around. But then, you know, before I started to buy too much into it again, I started reading, you know, some of Dr. Heiser's work and came across uh, Revelations Radio Network stuff. So that's kind of like on the on the borderline of finally believing it was aliens. but <laughs> Yeah, but what would your position be now at this point in your life? Oh, boy. You know, I think I think after actually researching some of the claims, I think, um, you know, definitely I would say everything I've come across to this point is definitely, you know, just human beings working really hard and, um, you know, being really smart and building stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you look at some of the stuff, it's like some of the evidence they, they put forth is just like really ridiculous. So um, the more of that, you know, absurd evidence I see, I think the, the less I believe it. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, what, what I think we do is um, if we 
might launch into one of your one of your articles that appears on the, on the website. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought we'd kick off with the one that the title is a bone to pick with the Star Child skull. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, just a brief background that I understand is that um, this Star Child so-called Star Child skull appears in the late '90s, um, and it's an enlarged skull. Um, and it's sort of put forth sometimes as some sort of proof that, that the ancients had contact with aliens. Now, I'll let you give us a bit more of a background than that. But what I'd like you to focus on, if you will, is why do they argue that it's a, you know, a non-human skull and therefore somehow alien? And then um, can you tell us, uh, after we put it under the microscope, so to speak, how it turns out that it's, you know, maybe no such animal um, in the woods, if you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so give us the background first and then tell us, you know, how your article, can I just say, dare say, debunks the whole theory of it <laughs> being alien? Sure. Um, you know, as I remember, um, I think I first came across it like in 1999 when I was still in that uh, exploring phase. I was reading, mm-hmm. you know, some of the New Ager magazines kind of stuff and they had a, it was actually a cover story. I have, I still have it here actually. And um, they kind of talked about this skull being, I think it was in the possession of some just kind of regular folks for a while. And then really literally collecting dust, I think in someone's closet. (laughs) Then somehow I got to this guy, his name was uh, Lloyd Pye. And he, I guess he was a writer. When you get down to it, he's a writer. And he um, he came across it, and he had already been getting pretty heavily into Sitchin stuff and basically repackaging it in his own book. And, you know, then he started to uh, kind of promote this thing as, a, as an alien skull or an alien hybrid skull. <laughs> you know, he just kind of took it to UFO conferences and did articles and, uh, he had a, he's, it's still up actually, the Star Child Project uh, website. And, you know, he, he was always putting it up there and trying to raise money to get it tested and stuff. Why, what's their argument that it's non-human? What's so special about this one? Well, I think the, um, what, what they think makes it non-human, uh, the things they claim is that uh, it's, you know, big and round. So obviously that's the uh, number one sign. Um, mm-hmm. It does have some abnormalities with it. Like um, I think they said that it doesn't even have sinuses, but what else? They, they said that some of the dentation or the you know the teeth and stuff mm-hmm. ca- kind of make it look out like it's uh, like it's an adult. You know the large eye sockets. Yeah. Uh, now you've got there's a picture of yeah. that on on in your blog article, so people will be able to yeah. look at that. Um, mm-hmm. Now I've got to tell you, um, DNA and DNA topics are not my forte. But, um, <laughs> but you've done a fair bit of investigation, and um, I noticed you um, on, on the next topic we're going to talk about too, you, you talk a fair bit about DNA. But mm-hmm. I understand that it was the DNA thing that brings this undone. Is that correct? Yeah, I definitely uh, think that's probably the biggest uh, nail in the coffin, as they say. Uh, so this, this thing has been tested uh, quite a few times for, for DNA, and you can see all that on the Star Child Project website. Um, I, I think the, the very first test they did was that it had came back like 100% human, like it had a human father, human mother. And then um, Pi, the, the guy who was 
you know, carrying this thing around, he he basically disregarded that that test result, and I don't even think you can find it on the Star Child website anymore. But he really discarded it as uh, that result as because of contamination um, of the DNA somehow, and they never really like elaborate on that or kind of talk about how they you know prevent that in the future. So. Um, yeah, that's that's really the first first part of it, and then you know from there the different DNA test results they've had. Um, you know, I think one of them concluded that the mother was of Native American descent. They found it was within a you know a very specific ethnic group in that area, so they found the mother's DNA. Um, the the skull was actually also found with another skeleton, and they've tested that DNA, and they found that. That one wasn't even related necessarily, but... Um... Alrighty, so if you don't mind me asking you, Frank, um, and I've never actually heard of this test before, um, just briefly, what is the BLAST test and what does it mean with regard to the star child skull? Uh, um, so the BLAST test is a... Um, the National Institute of Health has a, uh, a website and on it there's a... I guess they call it the BLAST test and that's an acronym for something and so... Basically, what you you can do is just a just a plain old website. You just enter data into, and then you just enter a string of genetic data into it, and you you plug search, and then it uh, will see if there's any matches within the you know NIH database, and that's really about all it does. And what has that got to do with the star child skull? What happens when the DNA from that is is plugged into this test? What they're representing it as is so they've claimed to have uh, entered in the DNA letters, you know, the G, C, T's, and A's and all that for the star child skull. And it, it comes back with a, kind of an inconclusive response. And what they're doing is kind of representing that as indicating it's uh, not human. When really, um, it's really quite easy to get that kind of result. Um, uh, Dr. Carter, who, who we'll talk about here shortly, he said you can basically um, enter in gibberish or enter in anything and and get back the same result that they did, um, the inconclusive result. Right, because I was going to ask you about Dr. Carter and, and mm-hmm. what his involves, involvement in this was. Yeah, Dr. Carter, he has a, um, a PhD, and he, he kind of, I think, studied uh, the genetics of coral and stuff for his uh, college degree. And he actually wrote an article that's on the CE4 research webpage, and I, I linked to that in the article. He's got a PhD. He knows genetics a bit, and he basically has written a whole, um, you know, treatise on, on where the star child skull goes wrong. <laughs> and um, you know, once you read that, it's pretty, I think, pretty conclusive that, you know, this this skull really is is not not really that special as far as aliens go. Right. <laughs> well, I was going <laughs> to ask you um, just uh, my my next question. I had in line frank mm-hmm. and um so what is this what is the star child skull alien or human or hybrid frank <laughs> <laughs> well uh, i i think it's pretty safe to say it's completely human um yeah yeah and and people can make their own decisions but they can look at your article and you like you said you've got links to mm-hmm. other things there where they can see um I think both sides of the argument, can't they? Like you do have yeah. links to the um, Star Child Project 
don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, actually, okay. you can go right to the Star Child project. Um, okay. I, you can try to read through the reports. Um, mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All righty. Yeah. What, what I what I thought we'd do is move on to another one of your articles, which is very in a very similar vein. You've titled it "Another Bone to Pick," and this one is um, the Peruvian Nephilim alien mm-hmm. hybrids. And it, like I said, it's similar, um, but yeah. it's a number of skulls that have been found um and the story goes back a bit further than the star child skull so mm-hmm. can you give us a bit of a background to these skulls and then we will finish up with me asking you probably the same question whether they're <laughs> alien nephilim or whatever so um what are the peruvian nephilim skulls the, the articles i found they all say they found uh, these uh archaeologists found these uh cone-headed skulls back in like 1928 in Paracas, Peru. You know, at the time, I think they found maybe like 400 of them, or they found quite a large number anyways. And um, some of them have hair. They're they're all from like, you know, different mummies and stuff. And so, um, yeah, some of them have hair. Some of them are more cone-shaped than others. Um, And some of them, they, you know, the the sutures on the skull are, are kind of, you know, either not there in in the wrong place or just kind of um, hard to find, basically. So um, before that, though, you know, people have been finding these kind of skulls in Peru, um, these cone-shaped skulls, all the way back into the, uh, like, 1850s. Um, So really, these 1928 ones really, I mean, yeah, they're cool from an archaeological point of view, but, um, you know, it's hardly, hardly unique. And and at the time they were discovered too, you know, um, I don't think there was any real sensational claim made about them. So, okay, so um, like I know that there, as you, you mentioned, the number of number of four hundred there, and I understand that um, I, I'm not sure, Frank, and you can tell me, but whether one or two or more were examined and DNA was tested, but I think one of the issues is. We don't know which one was tested, therefore mm-hmm. we don't really know what we're talking about. Is that right? Yeah. The story goes along those lines? Yeah, that's what I, um, you know, as I was researching this, um, I, I found it, like, really hard to find out exactly um, which skull material was taken from, um, even if they took material from one of the skulls. There's hundreds and hundreds of these skulls, and um, nobody, uh, you know, Brian Forster or... You know, the Star Child group has really put forth um, which skull material was taken from, and it's just really unclear what they're testing. <laughs> so, therefore, hard for anyone to make a, an objective. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, no, no one knows. <laughs> Very hard to be objective about, about if we don't know, you know, where the data comes from. But um, what's the connection between these skulls and the Star Child skull, if any? Well, I think the the main connection would be that um, people, various people, are claiming that these these skulls are are evidence of some sort of uh, hybrid life form, be it alien or or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the thing. uh, Uh, And is it the same group of people seem to be involved examining them and talking about them? Yeah. You know, I think it it does. Um, Brian Forster, he he's kind of a 
a guy who who's uh, he works a lot with David Childress, who who okay. we like at the blog. And Forster kind of latched onto the Star Child project when uh, Lloyd Pye died, mm-hmm. uh, who just recently, actually, I think in December. And okay. Yeah. So so it's sort of the same group of people involved. Yeah, I think you. It's not really explicit, but the Star Child people are sort of tangentially involved. Yes. Okay. Um. So. Frank, what, what is the ramen process and why is it relevant to this story? Yeah, one of the things with the uh, ramen process is that um, somebody took, that's actually really a long story, but somebody took one of the hairs from one of the mummies, again, we're not sure uh, which one, um, and they compared it to a, um, a hair um, that was supposedly found during some guy's alien abduction experience. So what someone has done is um, compared the two hairs and, and two more hairs to with, with this uh, method called Raman spectroscopy, and um, basically the graph that each hair has produced has a sort of similar slope, and so there people are are claiming there's some sort of connection or similarity to this, or at least you know hinting at that. And I guess to back up a bit, what what Raman is is it's um, it, it's a sort of test that lets people, I, I guess, test an object and see what what the chemical makeup of something is. So uh, it does seem to be used kind of frequently for hair, but you can use it on, I think you can probably use it on, on anything. And what it does is um, you put the object in the test and what they do is they, they hit it with, with a laser beam and different kinds of light and how, how that light, reflects off of the object and is absorbed by the object kind of helps them to determine, you know, I guess what something is made out of. So when you look at the graphs, what, what it is is the, on the graph, the, the y-axis, the, the vertical axis is I think the intensity of the light that's reflected off and the x-axis is the, the wavelength. And so anything you put in there is going to be giving off a different kind of graph. So um, when you're comparing different hairs, even hairs from the same individual, sometimes I think you can get a different result um, on the graph. So, and you know, there's a lot of uh, particulars with the Raman process that um, you know it's a very reliable test. But like any test, you got to be careful with you know what you're putting in there and how you're interpreting the results. What were the results? They're claiming some sort of alien source, are they? For the hairs. Yeah, yeah, it's it's heavily implied that uh, okay. you know this, this mummy hair and this alleged hybrid hair mm-hmm. have a similar slope on the graph. Right. So so there's some sort of connection is is what the kind of implication is. But um, really, both hairs have a you know completely different intensity and wavelength of light being reflected off of it. So. And what was what were your conclusions? How did your article conclude on this one? Um, like I'm starting to sound a bit like a game show host, but <laughs> but Frank, alien, humid, or hybrid? Uh, hmm. <laughs> Bigfoot? No. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think this one will end up turning out human. They're still supposedly doing some tests on it, but right. um, I think um, any tests that come back are probably going to be ambiguous at best. My money's on on human, but I I think the claim will be made that it's other otherwise. So that is an interesting article, and um, also um, you'll be able to find that people will be able to find that when um, I put the 
the link in the show notes to the blog. Um, now, a third one that you and I had decided we'd talk about was this topic of UFOs in the Bible and particularly to do with the book of Zechariah and Zechariah chapter 5. Now, in this segment, um, I wouldn't mind reading directly from your article, if you don't mind, and yeah, um, sure, then we can dig into it a bit because, um, you know, we're, we're discussing a direct Bible topic. So I want to give our audience the, the best opportunity to sort of understand the background of this um, that you've laid out. And then, um, so I'll just read a little bit. And then I think what I'll do is I'm actually going to read Zechariah chapter five, but first I'll just read what you've written here, just partly. Okay, so here's your a segment of your blog article. And this is discussing um, Zechariah chapter 5. Now, it says here, First, the chapters preceding 5 are clearly a heavenly vision of the spirit realm. In chapter 1, Zechariah reports a vision of red horses and of horns floating in the air. Surprisingly, no one has yet claimed these floating horns were UFOs, though I'm sure someone will eventually. Now, we're probably going to help them with that one, Frank, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 2 continues the vision showing a man with a line chapter 3 the vision shifts to God's throne a high priest and also Satan standing with the angel of the Lord the angel of the Lord is often thought to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ and some of the commentaries agree that to be the case here there is also a high priest Joshua which is a form of the name Jesus and some foreshadowing of Jesus role as high priest that seems to be confirmed in chapter 6 when the high priest Joshua gets crowned, something that would otherwise be unusual in the Israelite culture given that the king was not to have priestly duties and vice versa. Just before chapter 5, where the UFO allegedly appears, comes chapter 4. Funny how that works. I like you've got that there. Chapter 4, <laughs> there's discussion about lamps and olive branches that appear before God's throne. This is reminiscent, to me at least, of Revelation where there are seven lampstands. There are differences, but the imagery is similar in some ways. At this point, it's important to point out again that pretty much everything up until this point is a vision happening in the spirit world. Unquote. So um, I read that to emphasize that you are emphasizing that this is a vision, right? Um, And I wanted people to understand that. And they will when they read this, but I thought it important in case people don't take the time to read that. And what I'll do now um, is I'll just read Zechariah 5 and then we'll discuss it, right? And it's not a long Mm -hmm. chapter. So Zechariah chapter 5, Then I lifted up my eyes again and I looked and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side. And everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. I said, What is it? And he said, This is the Epfar going forth. And he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the Epfar. Then he said, This is wickedness. 
and he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Now, I wanted to read that relative section so that people have a background of what we're going to talk about. Okay, so mm. now, as I said, you emphasize that what we're dealing with here is a vision that Zechariah yeah. is having, okay? And, mm-hmm. and it's not a UFO. This is a, this is a flying scroll, right? And the basket right. that they're talking about in the vision is also something visionary and, and probably best not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing at myself here, but best not mistaken as a UFO. Um, yeah. So what is going on here? Like I've read your article and I, I know mm-hmm. it's what you meant, but what's going on here? In your opinion, what is this Zechariah 5 about? If it's not about UFOs flying around, what's it about? Yeah, this vision, I, I think when you uh, look at it in, in the context, um, the Jews are, are returning from Babylon, um, you know, where they've been kind of in exile for a while. And, uh, you know, the, I think Zechariah also lines up pretty well with, I think, the book of Haggai and Ezra, too. So it's if you kind of read those three together in context, you kind of see, you know, the Jews have just finished their, their exile, um, their punishment from God, basically, for all the stuff that happened in the book of Kings and Chronicles. And, you know, so as they're returning, they there's kind of like this call to repentance and to, to start, I guess, obeying God and following the law, you know, again. And, um, you know, Zechariah, he takes kind of a different approach than, than Ezra and Haggai. And I think his writing is mostly a vision and, and just kind of... Um, I guess talking about the importance of repentance and obeying God, and he he had a kind of a lively looking vision as opposed to what the others had. And in, in his book, you can kind of see all these, um, you know, spiritual symbolism and and things of that nature. So, um, so what I think it is, given that that's the case, um, you know, some of the commentaries. I think uh, Guzik's con- commentary was that this was a, a scroll of the law. And um, kind of talking about how if people don't obey the law, then they're going to be, you know, judged by the law. It's kind of my, my take on it, I guess. And, um, you know, as you break down, too, in, in Chapter 5, the, you know, the word for scroll here, or, or roll, as they have in the, in the King James, um, that's the Hebrew word uh, Megillah. Um, I probably mispronounced that, but it's you can do a word search for that and find it wherever it appears. And... Every other time that word is used in the Bible, it's it means specifically like a scroll, as in like a writing scroll or, you know, like a scroll of the Torah or whatever. Um, pretty much every everyone I've ever seen in that, you know, in that word search was all, you know, a scroll and nothing else. So for it to be something not a scroll in this case is kind of a departure, you know, from, from the rest of the Bible. So I guess that's the the first part, and then the uh, the the ephah or ephah, the basket. Um, that's kind of the same story with that one, where it's used in the Bible. It's always always a basket and nothing else. So I think you know when you see that part in in chapter five, 
you have, um, you know, like like we're saying, the Jews have just been in exile in Babylon for for basically wickedness and materialism in in some ways, and this is kind of representing, I think, that kind of materialist spirit leaving the Jews and, and going back to Babylon where it belongs. Um, and, you know, symbolically a basket is being used because that, that word for basket is also a specific measurement, you know, so their, you know, their measurement of wickedness is going back to Babylon. And then from here, the Jews are supposed to try to, to live right according to, you know, God's word and all that, uh, all, all the law. Right. And I think as you, you get into the New Testament, you see that the Jews kind of, they did do that, you know, they, they adopted the law and, you know, you got the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the Pharisees kind of took all that to maybe an extreme and, you know, we, we all know where Jesus gets into all that, but yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, I think I tend to agree um, when you, you know, you said that it, it, it basically the removal of the Babylonian spirit from Jerusalem and returning to from whence it came, you know, back to Babylon. So, yeah. Um, so we will put that one to bed as the flying scroll is definitely not a UFO, Frank. Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now, our fourth and final one, although you have written more than four, haven't you? How, oh, many, yeah. written, how many are there on there that you've written? I, I, I'm not sure. Oh, my gosh. Barely more than four, it seems. But uh, when I look back, uh, oof, I'd say there's probably at least more than ten. I haven't actually okay. really counted Right. I should probably go back and review and edit some of those by, right. by now because I, I, I noticed some typos, but yeah. So. Okay. All righty. So um, to our final article that we're going to discuss, and um, this is also very, very interesting, and I have read about this before, and in fact, I'd forgotten about it for many years until I came across your art- article again, Frank, but um, it's the um, Nuremberg woodcut of the UFO battle. Um, now, this is based on a woodcut which pictures a supposed battle between UFOs in the woodcut. It, ha- it appears to have some of them crashing into the ground. And in your article, you do advise that the woodcut was kind of like the inquirer of its time. It tended to focus on weird happenings, right? So we, we must take that under advisement. And if you will, give us the background of this story and then... Let us know, you know, just give us the background to what it's about and then what you think it's about because mm-hmm. um, I, I tend to agree totally with the way your argument um, went, but I don't want to spoil that. I'd rather hear it from sure. you. So what's okay. the background to, to this one, Frank? Yeah, um, there's a, a kind of famous uh, picture you can find on the Internet. Um, and actually, I found it when I was, you know, in my early 20s, kind of trying to get answers to the whole ancient alien thing and, you know, are there aliens, whatever. So back in the 1560s, there was a, uh, in, in Nuremberg, Germany, there's a woodcut you can find. And it's it shows like, a, you know, a bunch of circles, rods, crosses, and a big, big triangle. And it looks... Looks basically like Return of the Jedi, you know. <laughs> you got um, all this stuff supposedly having a battle there in the air, and then you have in the corner something looks like it crashed. And um, if there was wreckage there, that that would be like the the best evidence you could ever have for you know ancient aliens, probably. So, um, so coming from there, um, I actually tried to debunk this once before on my other blog and didn't really do a real good job of it. At first, I kind of thought this might have been like a like a hallucination or something, you know, from people getting, you know, poisoning from mold or whatever, you know, because that was kind of common back in that day. 
But, um, you know, when I was kind of talking with uh, Chris about this one, he had mentioned uh, this this phenomenon called uh, sun dogs, and I had heard of it before when I had uh, been doing the research, but never really investigated that avenue. But this time around, I, I really started to look into sun dogs. And, you know, if you Google that, you'll find some good pictures. Um, uh, the article has a lot of pictures of it, too. But, you know, the more I looked at that, the, the more I thought, you know, this maybe is what's going on here. Um, because as you go through the um, description, they, they talk about they saw. Uh, so first, yeah, the sun. I was going to yeah, say. Go I was going to say you do provide in this particular um, article. You do provide a lot of pictures and photos for people to look at, mm-hmm. which will um, make it a lot clearer when um, one goes and looks at it. But also, there's been a video made of it too on YouTube. Yeah. I noticed that as well. Um, yep. So yeah, you're going to explain what sun dogs are because mm-hmm. this is where you, the conclusion you came to i'm just letting Mm -hmm. people know that you do have photographs in your article Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah continue please tell us um what the sun dogs are yeah a sun dog basically is you know in the upper parts of the atmosphere there's um you know a lot of ice crystals sometimes and um what happens when the sun or even the the moon shines through those ice crystals it it basically creates like a prism effect and so the light starts uh, reflecting and refracting through these ice crystals and does kind of some crazy stuff. And um, most of the time, you know, it looks like it's kind of at a standstill, but as, you know, the sun moves in the sky, you know, different shapes kind of appear, I guess, based on the location of the sun. And and sometimes you can see cross shapes, uh, rod shapes, tube shapes, different colored spheres, um, all that kind of stuff. So basically everything you can see in the woodcut is something that a sun dog can do. But yeah, that's where that, that is, I guess. So essentially you, your argument is that this is not a battle of UFOs. It's um, a guy who's um, depicting sun dogs in his woodcut. But where, where, yeah. did the, where did the idea come from in modern times that this might have been of UFOs? Uh, I think a couple of places. I mean, first, the translation from German, it kind of talks about how these these rods and circles and crosses fought each other, and then there was a supposedly a crash, and then this black triangle shows up, you know. I think people are looking at it like it's a, basically like a photograph or, you know, kind of a sequential series of events there. But really, when you know, when you get down to it... Um, you know, the, the sun dog explains the, the crosses and tubes, and that as as the sun moves, you know, the, the shapes move and do different things. But when you get to the, the crash and the triangle, I think that comes into something called uh, false streaks, which is also, I think the same kind of clouds that generate sun dogs can kind of create that effect too. And what that is is the ice crystals fall and they kind of, grouped together and they kind of can make different shapes and you know, the translation kind of makes it sound like this group of steam just kind of falls down it's really not describing a crash or anything like that and you know I, my theory also is that the uh the sun hit hit the created a shadow on this you know ice cloud and, and made it look like a big triangle shape so not really sure if that's answering the question. No, no, but... it did because I was going to ask you about the crash as well because as you yeah. were speaking, I was looking at the picture here and, um, yeah, I was. that's where I was going to go. Oh, and actually, you know, if you, if you read the translation too, it says, you know, um, you know, everything 
fell from the sun and the sky down to the earth, like burning all together and, and vanished. So it's like this steamy looking thing kind of going down to the earth and then it just disappears like it, like a big, big bunch of smoke. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, this is definitely one I think anyone listening to this should go there and have a look because you've got a lot of um, graphics there to, to show what you're talking about, but also a lot of mm-hmm. links to YouTube videos um, that explain how these sun dogs, uh, their effect. And you've also got some other other medieval writings on, on this phenomena. Yeah, there are a couple um, different pictures from, from kind of these older sources. and mm, um, yeah. Yeah, um, there, there was actually a website I linked to there that has kind of a gallery of all these woodcuts. You can go look at them. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them, they depict like um, knights fighting in the air, which is really actually just kind of the Aurora Borealis. And, yeah. you know, Glazer, the same guy who did this woodcut, he kind of embellished a little bit and, <laughs> okay. you know, to sell sell magazines maybe. so. Right, okay. And as we started out, we said this is woodcuts in that era we're like reading the inquiry to today right yeah that, that's kind of uh what chris was telling me yeah so they tended to deal with weird and wonderful things for the most part yeah some of them depicted like you know babies born with multiple heads and okay. um yeah a lot of you know more, more like weekly world news in my opinion <laughs> right okay that's uh you know the humor one here we we used to have in america so yeah all right well um so to finish this one off in in, mm-hmm. in the fashion that I picked up, UFOs or not, Frank? Uh, I'm going to say no. It's uh, definitely, uh, you know, I think it's totally sun dogs and, and yeah. you know, just a nice cloudy morning probably. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. And just before I let you go, um, mm-hmm. any um, what's coming up next for the blog? Do you have something you're in the middle of? Um, nothing at the moment. Uh, just taking a you know a little break. I, I think between blogs, I, I like to take a little break. A couple of topics I, I might look at doing is um, you know, one of them was uh, the works of Emmanuel Velikovsky. He kind of well, the Skeptic magazine they did a recent piece on him, but they described him as having like ping pong planets. So it's, yeah, you know, he's he's saying that the the solar system was kind of like a billiards table and just kind of all over the place. So yeah, I've got his book here, Worlds in Collision. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that his work might be something I'm interested in looking at. Yes, maybe some some of the statues, but those are really hard to research. Um, yeah, interesting. Let's see, yeah. I'll give you a couple more scoops here. Hold on. Uh, oh, yeah, Barry Downing's uh, Bibles, or UFOs in the Bible. Oh, good. That yeah, was uh, good. definitely good, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one I'm interested in doing. Okay. So so, um, so thanks for those couple of scoops there, Frank, and um, obviously I'll be looking out for them and people can go back People can go back to the blog and, and find them in the future. But one thing I wanted to ask you was um, what's your preparation time for one of your um, blog articles? Oh boy, um, <laughs> you know, uh, a really easy topic, uh, maybe a couple weeks if, mm-hmm. if um, other people have sufficiently debunked it before. Right. But for something like the, the Nephilim Skulls one was, mm-hmm. oh, I think it felt like a couple of months. Um, yeah. And so, especially because I'm trying to be really careful, sure. uh, making sure the data I put forth is accurate, uh, it yeah. can take a couple of months weeding through all the sources and then trying to write up something that's... Uh, you know, very informative, but also, you know, kind of entertaining, too, is, is kind of, that's actually the easiest part, I, I feel. Right, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, wading through the information is just tough sometimes. And actually, finding is finding it is is even harder sometimes. Yeah, finding so. information is tough, isn't it? On um, it is. Oh. Yeah, some of these topics, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, if I, I I'm finding that um, using scholarly articles really does help a lot, but yeah. those are really hard to get unless you're in college or you have a subscription or a way to get those pretty easily. I, I found a few for free on the net, but it's it's tough, yeah. Yeah, the, the the Peruvian skulls one especially, because yeah. um, there there was unknown so many unknowns with that one. You know, people are doing Raman spectroscopy and mm. DNA tests, and you know, there's a lot of stuff with the formation of the skull. You know, like the the sutures are supposedly missing on the skull. You know, and so I had a couple of people help me with some sources for for the skulls. Right. You know, skull growth. Um, the the technical really technical stuff I, I did get some help on the sources there so yeah and backing up on that one you know those things really aren't missing sutures you know that's actually totally natural so. okay so just before we let you go Frank um, if people want to ask more questions about your work or anything like that can they make comments on the blog or or what happens yeah, um, unfortunately, we, we don't really have comments enabled on the blog because there's a lot of spam and okay. a lot of um, – and there was some, some hacking that happened. Uh, okay. Hopefully it doesn't happen again. But uh, right. Oh, uh, I know there is an email you can, you can send in, but uh, I know I haven't really been good at checking it. I know Chris does sometimes okay. check it. So, um, yeah, they can email Chris White uh, at his usual spots or, okay. you know. All right. Uh, All right, good. All right. Okay, well, thanks for that, Frank. Well, Frank, I'd like to say thank you for your time. Um, I hope I wasn't too hard on you wearing you down to get you on the show, but, um, <laughs> oh, man, you're you tough, um, but we got oh. you there, and um, I'm just really happy that you, you came on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, mate, I just really enjoyed that. Um, I really enjoy reading your writing on there. I do like the, uh, the whole website, in fact, um, Ancient Aliens Debunked. Um, I'll put the link to that website in the show notes and if you go there you can see across the top the the blog button you'll be able to click on that and in that blog you'll be able to find all of frank's frank's articles there so frank johnson thanks for your time and thanks for coming on to like flint radio thanks jay thanks for having me i really appreciate it okay god bless thank you you too bye-bye bye Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. Cut. <laughs> Cut. <laughs>